Welcome to the Fearless Women Podcast. We're inspiring conversations for the unafraid. I'm Janice McDonald, founder of the Beacon Agency, author, and global champion for women. Why am I making this show? Because I want to share the inspiring stories of women leaders in business, arts and culture, politics, and more with all of you. Hear how they've chosen to go forward and be bold and make the world a better place, even when it wasn't easy to do. Subscribe now wherever you find podcasts. Hey, everybody. I'm Janice McDonald. Welcome to the Fearless Women podcast. Today, I'm joined by the esteemed Dr. Julie Caffley. She's the Executive Vice President Programs and Partnerships at Public Policy Forum. An accomplished leader and academic, she has expertise in higher education, leadership, and governance. So we have so much to talk about. I'm very excited to have you here today. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much, Janice. Delighted to be here. And welcome, of course, and thank you to our listeners from around the world, including Ireland, USA, Australia, Spain, France, and so many more countries. We want our community to grow. So please tell your friends and follow us on Instagram. Thanks also to our amazing sponsors, 30% Club Canada, ADGA, and BDC. So Julie, you are the Vice President of Programs and Partnerships at Public Policy Forum, an organization you joined in 2010. Uh, Talk about the organization, its focus, and what you're up to over there. Absolutely. The Public Policy Forum is a, is a fantastic organization that was created 32 years ago. We like to consider ourselves more as an applied policy shop than a think tank. We really focus on breaking down issues to build a better Canada. So we work in the area of energy and climate growth and competitiveness um, in the area of healthy democracies and governance. And we really try to bring people together from the private sector, from academia, from the public sector for difficult questions. We want to create some tension. We want um, to advance good public policy through dialogue, discussion, convening, and obviously research. And so you're a mother also? Yes, absolutely. Two boys, 14 and 16. Now, were they off on, uh, are they part of the striking for climate on Fridays? Is that? They were both there. Absolutely. I have one that's a bit more activist than the other, but um, absolutely. Yeah, they're very much engaged on that. It's exciting to see Mm -hmm. young people finding their voices. Absolutely. So, of course, we also share an advancement uh, on, um, or we share an interest, I should say, on the advancement of women leaders. And you have an interesting organization that I was actually unfamiliar with, uh, CaffleyCommittee.org. So, what is it? What, what are you up to? And why did you start it? So it's, it's interesting. And it's just, um, it's a bit of a personal mission of mine. Um, it was a, a website that was created actually when I left the University of Ottawa after 14 years. And I'd kind of created my own personal mission to advance, to promote, to celebrate women. And so um, anyone knows if they ask me for recommendations on speakers, on writers, on authors, on award nominees, that um, women are, are often, if not always, at the top of my list. And it's really important to me. And so in the president's office, as in the role of chief of staff, you know, there's many opportunities to nominate amazing people for yes. the Order of Canada, for the Order of Ontario, the Order of Quebec powerful, you know, all sorts of different competitions. And uh, I kind of made that my my own personal mission. And it is to this day. And I would think that um, 
if you look at the stats in terms of the Order of Canada, only mm-hmm. 30% are, are currently women. And so we have uh, a lot of catching up to do. And it's it's really important. And uh, there's lots of good awards out there. You know, men in many ways will will ask to be nominated, will help to prepare their nomination file. And, and women so, simply don't do that as much. And so I reach out to women. I promote women. I celebrate women. And I've been quite successful. There's probably been about... I would say, you know, 60 to 70 people that have won many prestigious awards over the past uh, 25 years. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. That is really moving and super inspiring. I mean, I knew that you were always a champion of women leaders, but but that's very measurable in terms of outcomes. Absolutely. Wow. That's incredible. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Keep doing that. (laughs) All right. Let's talk about your PhD. So many years of study and focus. What did it take to finish your doctorate? And, um, you know, I think it can be helpful for other people. They may not be, you know, taking that kind of a task on, but the same kind of skills. How did you you really get that over the finish line? Yeah. So about 10 years ago, I went to see the dean at the Faculty of Education at the the University of Ottawa. And I I was really just inquiring. I said, my kids are still young. I don't have time now, but I'm I'm really interested and really passionate about uh, continuing my PhD. And by the end of that session, she had me signing admission papers. (laughs) I went home to my husband and said, guess what? Um, And I actually never regretted that, even though it wasn't at all my plans. So my PhD for me was a lot of early mornings. I wrote probably 95% of my PhD between 4 and 9 Mm -hmm. a.m. My husband had a lot of uh, a role to play around that. He um, has early onset Parkinson's disease. And so he had stopped working and was at home with the kids and, and much more present and able to help me and support me during that time. And it was a lot of just, you, you asked somebody else in one of your previous podcasts about so many decisions to make and, and how you just become a bit automated. And I think in terms of discipline, that's sometimes what you have to do. And I, I remember during my PhD, you know, candidates would get together every week and talk about the trials and tribulations of writing a PhD. And I was fr- kind of frustrated inside of me because I said, just write, you know, spend those two hours <laughs> writing and reading and it'll help more don't than... Don't gather. Yeah, don't gather. Um, and so to I think... To commiserate. Right. Which is putting you further behind. Exactly. (laughs) And so I think it's a lot of just doing. And uh, for me, it was breaking it down into bite sized pieces, being incredibly passionate about the subject matter that I was studying and um, and just getting it done. That's incredible. And it's interesting to me. I'm kind of having an aha moment. I was interested in. uh, So I have two different master's degrees and I was interested in pursuing a Ph.D. And I spoke to a mentor of mine and he told me the opposite thing. Like instead of signing up, he's like, ah, you don't need it. You don't have time. What are you thinking about? And it is a regret. You know, I would have liked somebody say, just sign up here. Because to your point, you somehow find the time. You somehow make it happen. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, that's it's. I should have asked a couple more people, I think. <laughs> well, and it's also interesting because, you know, I had people when I started it who said, you know, you know, women have so many insecurities that they need those extra letters after their names and, you know, just ways of knocking you ah, down. And this morning when you asked how to introduce me and, and asked the use of doctor, you know, just before I, I graduated, um, someone who's quite influential in my life said, you know, beyond academia, we don't really use the title of doctor. And, and I thought, okay, that's, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not very tied to that. It doesn't matter. But I thought it was it was quite ironic that um, there was kind of an attempt to say, you don't need to use that here in a sense, uh, which was very interesting. Especially when it's so hard earned. 
Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and use it, Dr. Caffley. Dr. <laughs> Caffley. Dr. Caffley. So, all right. Let's talk about a time when you were fearless. I know there's many um, or at least bold. Uh, and how did you move forward in, in the face of that fear or, or overcome that challenge, whatever that big mountain uh, that you were staring up at. Yeah. Um, I have this, this quote in my, uh, in my office that's, that my dad gave me that said, you have to, you know, climb the mountain to see the view. And, and, you know, there's lots of mountains that you climb. And, uh, my most recent one was, was more of a, a personal example and it was scuba diving. Oh. I just became certified as a, as a scuba diver with my kids and my husband. And, um, so a family pursuit, a family pursuit. That's so fun. It was so much fun. And I remember being in the pool Watching my son and my husband, who I mentioned, who's had Parkinson's for the last 20 years, you know, diving and going under. And I couldn't even trust the air machine to breathe underwater. Like I was I was in four foot deep water and I couldn't put my head down. I was terrified, frozen. There was tiny little tears coming down my cheeks. Mm. And I just thought, I can't do this. And I thought I felt vulnerable because my family was there. I felt vulnerable because they told me I had to be this this super partner to my my husband who had certain limitations, and I was terrified. And I also knew I was about to visit one of the places in the world that was the most beautiful for scuba diving, and that I just couldn't miss it. And uh, I give a lot of credit to our instructor who stood by me and just kept on saying, you're not getting out of this pool, and you can do it. <laughs> and uh, I think I asked to get out of the pool six times, and I might have sworn a little bit. And he just kept with it. And it was one of the most amazing experiences, obviously, to be underwater as a family, to gain our qualifications and our accreditation together. And now it's something, you know, as... You know, having teenage boys, you just want to be with them at all costs and you see them, you know, getting more independent and moving out on their own. And I just wanted to do this because it was a pretty amazing thing to do. And I and, and the shared pursuit exactly, as a family. Absolutely. And so where was this amazing place that the family went to? It was in Roatan, an oh, island in yeah. yeah, Honduras. So, yeah. It was, yeah, so you went and then and you weren't scared then? I Once I got over the fear, I was fine. I was fine. And it was a really fantastic learning experience. But yeah. And then I think uh, when I think about fear, I, I can think of an example in terms of, of work that happened just last week. And I know that you'll appreciate this anecdote. So I among, you know, I have this personal pursuit in terms of nominating women. I also have this personal pursuit in terms of stopping mannels because <laughs> mannels, of course, you know, male only yes. panels happen right. all of the time. Yeah. And I spent years, you know, writing to organizers and they'd say, thank you so much for your feedback. We'll keep it in mind for next time. And, and I really didn't get a lot of action. And so in the past five years or so, I've started writing to the organizers, but I also at the same time write to the sponsors and I write to the speakers and I write, which to is really when you write to the sponsors, Ah, yeah. Bold and, strategy. Love yeah. It. And so I did it. And the organizers were not very happy with me, I must say. And one of the speakers responded immediately and said, you're absolutely right. I have a senior vice president equally as competent as I and, and she will be delighted to step into the panel and replace me. And it made everyone stop and listen. And it made action happen. And I was really tired of thanks for your feedback. Delighted to hear from you. I really wanted action. And, and I'm going to be meeting with the organizers now and talking about strategies going forward and, and really trying to be to be helpful. Um, but, you know, during that process, they said, you know, would you complain if it was a female only panel? And I said, you know, no, of course I wouldn't have because, you know, women's voices haven't been heard uh, you know, over yeah, the course of history. We, haven't heard. we have not. We're so used to seeing that and taking an all-male panel as the default and also as the experts. Exactly. And I said, you know, a female moderator is not enough. We want female expertise. And so I think that was a moment where, 
it was, you know, and, and you know, it's, it's a bold moment, but it's a moment that matters and it's a moment that ignites action, which is obviously what we're watching. It makes me think of Ruth Bader Ginsburg when asked about how many would she like to see, you know, all women. I'm, I'm, I'm butchering kind of her quote, but all women on the Supreme Court. And she said, of course, nobody ever complained when it was all men. Exactly. It's, it's very exactly. similar. <laughs> exactly. How do we bring men, Dr. Caffley, into the discussion to make change? I think it's absolutely essential. And I, you know, early on in my career, I would attend so many, you know, women's leadership, women's only, women's executive this. And I think that that is a place for connection and for friendship and for support. And it's important. But in terms of advancing change, you know, women need to be at the tables. We can't be having initiatives for women. We need women to be driving the change at the real table and not talking um, in, so not in on silos. The, not at the kids' table. Not at the kids' <laughs> tables. And it's it's same with so many issues, right? In terms of, you know, it's important to have discussions amongst Indigenous communities, but it's really important to have Indigenous leaders talking about Canada's economic growth and talking about, about the real issues. And so I don't know how we can, you know, value those connections amongst women and yet really ensure that the change is happening. Well, as you know, on this show, we invite male leaders, male champions who really are in support of women's uh, leadership. And I think that's that to me, that's the pathway for change is to continue to find the champions and create, I guess, community with those champions. And I think, you know, I hear so many male champions who say, you know, I have a daughter and because of my daughter and I, I have to admit that, you know, everyone doesn't need to have a daughter to care about women's equality. You know, it's, it's a nice thought that your daughter does inspire you in terms of the importance of having women at the table, but it's got to be much deeper than that. And it's got to be more important than that. And we can't assume that only, you know, male champions are only going to be the people who've had daughters and who see that firsthand through their own families. We need all men uh, playing a role and being active champions. So, all right, tell me uh, if this quote resonates with you. And I, I think it will just given what you shared, but doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. Does it resonate? Absolutely. Um, so my, my PhD actually focused on failure. So it immediately goes to, to that for me. I studied what you can learn about leadership and governance through leadership failure. And of course, for, for women, this is a bit big, bit more of an issue. And so within my research, Actually, on the first draft of, of my uh, my research, I actually did not include this issue. And my, my, my panel and my supervisors said, Julie, what are you doing? But what I'd found is that in Canada, so basically I studied unfinished mandates of university presidents. presidents yeah. And what at that time, so now we're at 25% of leader, university presidents in Canada being women. At the time of my PhD five years ago, it was 18%. So 18%, so very, very underrepresented in terms mm -hmm. of the number of female leaders. And yet over 50% of those being fired essentially or their mandates being cut were women. Mm -hmm. So uh, dra dramatically underrepresented in terms of the number of presidents, dramatically overrepresented in terms of the firings. And I've spent time with all of those women and actually developed friendships with them through my research. And... Um, fascinating stories of resilience. I went into my research with a bias towards these university presidents because universities are very complex and governance structures are very complex and um, they're also very male dominated. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I immediately you know, learned so much about 
how all of that works and and some of the research that I'm sure you know well in terms of you know the glass cliff and how women are put into difficult yeah. situations and uh, and meaning put into a difficult situation with very little chance of success. Exactly. Finally, you know if 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 there's an opportunity, oh, you can have it now because no one else wants it. Exactly. Essentially, and that and that was so 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 typical. It was such a common story, and so yeah. Absolutely. So I think, you know, failure, I think, is a very interesting lens to look at a lot of things. And how did you at the end of your PhD, what like what are some kind of key takeaways is that you could extrapolate for people's careers for women, ambitious women out there? Yeah, absolutely. So there was a lot of really clear findings that are quite practical and, and quite hands on mm-hmm. um, a lot around board governance and communications. The fact that um University boards in particular don't always understand the complexities of universities. Trust within the executive team. At a university, um, you actually often inherit your executive team. So is there trust? You know, in many situations, there was actually a leader within that team who had applied to be president, him or herself. and, And how do you work together going forward? One thing that will interest you is, is the role of mentorship. You know, many of these positions, uh, you know, it's lonely at the top. And through the qualitative research, you'd see that actually the women would reach out for mentorship more often than the men. And that mentorship is, is a lot less common when you're when you're at the top. And it was um, often a need to speak to a former university president to reach out, to ask those questions and actually regret that they hadn't done so in a more active way. There's the role of the predecessor. So how that former president who is often on campus, sometimes they, they, they play a bit of a closet presidency where they continue to, mm-hmm. to attempt a to long influence. shadow. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yep. The effectiveness or the lack of effectiveness of the transitional process. And then obviously the issue of, of diversity more broadly that I already discussed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so uh, with all of the things that you've learned there, what, what, if any, is some advice you have for ambitious women? Well, I think there's something there about resilience. Um, you know, when you look at our female political leaders right now, and there's a lot to be said about resilience. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was chief of staff to Alan Rock when he became president of the University of Ottawa. And as a former politician, you know, he would joke quite openly about having really thick skin. And that was fantastic for the role of university president because you needed to have that. And he was the first non-academic to be hired at the University of Ottawa as well. So that was a bit of a challenging process for him. And, you know, I think about that resilience and and how important that is for women to know, for example, in the role of a university president where you have alumni, donors, students, faculty members who essentially see your role quite differently and how all of that impacts their degree of happiness with the role that you're doing. And so I think resilience is, is really important in terms of standing strong, continuing the work, learning, and that sense of of humility around the, all of the, the, uh, competing demands. Exactly. Exactly. And maybe keeping them in perspective as well. Absolutely. Yeah. That's interesting because when it is so complex and when people see your role very differently, uh, they're also judging you differently in terms of your effectiveness. Absolutely. That's fascinating. So, um, tell me about a time that someone told you you couldn't do something and you went ahead and succeeded anyway. Yeah. So one of my mantras, I guess, is a bit, it's in French, it's tout est possible. And so mm-hmm. it was something that, you know, the Soc du Soleil used as a very early mantra to the stuff that they were, that they, they were doing when it was, when it was brand new. And I think that's something that we talk about a lot in our family and that it, there's always a way to make it work. And there's always a way that, that it's possible. And, you know, I can think of a, the, the first example that comes to mind when you mention it is kind of a silly example, but it was when I joined the faculty of education doing my bachelor's in education. 
And I'd heard about this pro, well, I hadn't heard about this program actually, but there was this hands on, you know, you spend your year in the classroom, you don't have to do formal learning. It's more of a, a bit of a co-op position. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't heard about it, but I really wanted to do it. And I, the program started two weeks before my program. And I just, I just went and I sat there every day and, you know, the profs would say, well, you're not on our class list. And I said, it's okay. You know, someone's going to drop out and I'm going to be close by <laughs> when they do. And I kind of, I kind of squatted the class and I eventually got in and it was, it was really important because it was a whole year of my life that meant I was in the classroom and connecting with kids. And I really, you know, was excited about that. So I think there's a bit of that kind of that, just that determination of saying there's a way that we can make this work. And I think that's something that I have carried. It's kind of a thread within me and that I'm, I'm, I think I'm instilling it in my boys as well in terms of if you really want something, there's a way to get there. I love this idea of, of just going <laughs> because also if you did get in eventually after somebody dropped out, then you're a month behind or three weeks behind, but you were right up to speed. And if I didn't get in, what did I lose? You know, right. I was two weeks yeah, of your time. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. That's I'm going to take that as a as a takeaway. So um, you are an active volunteer and you talked about uh, your husband's early onset Parkinson's. I know you've been active with that organization. But, but um, before you tell us all the different things that you're involved in, um, how has it shaped your career being a volunteer, if at all? So. For me, it's never been a choice. It's it's that that's part of, I guess, the way I was raised by my parents was that you just give back um, in whatever way you can. And so whether it's with my kids schools, with the Parkinson's organization, through my alma mater, through the University of Ottawa, you just give back and you give in any way you can at the different stage of life that you can. And my kids are active volunteers. And so yeah, I don't think I ever really have questioned it. Um how it's helped my career, I think it, um, I've definitely learned a lot of really just hard skills that are, that are really important regarding governance, regarding fundraising, regarding communications. Um, a network. Has network been? Because I think yeah. lots of people have said, I get a chance to get to know people that maybe I wouldn't have come across and I know them in a very different way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, you know, I think the part of my career has also has impacted those organizations that I've been able to help through networks. And so I kind of see it as as all a part of my life that, that overlaps together. And, and it's just, it's just, it's one of those, those automations that I, that I'm coming back to that you just, you just do because you do it. Yeah. You just do it. And so what are the, because you are an active volunteer. So what are you involved? I mean, you're doing your own organization, which I'm still very deeply moved by. But what else are you? So I'm on the board of, of Parkinson's Canada, and uh, that's something that means a lot to me. I'm really focused there on research, 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 because we still have hope for a cure. Mm-hmm. I was involved more in my, my kids' school when they were younger, mm-hmm. but I've just joined the campaign cabinet at the University of Ottawa, which is exciting. They're uh, relaunching their campaign, and there's lots to do there. And they've got some, you know, just on the weekend, Callan Ravinescu from Air Canada and yeah. Alex Trebek made significant donations. So there's really lots of great momentum over there. And uh, I'm also in the Alumni Association there as well. So it's, um, yeah. Very, busy lady. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what's something you wish you knew earlier? I think it's that sense of, of just speaking truth, of just saying things. And you talk about... What you do know, you mean exactly? I think it's, I think as a chief of staff, I learned about how lonely those leadership positions can be. And so as chief of staff, I was the person who would say... 
you know, your tie is crooked. That speech was really bad. And this faculty is really angry with you over this. And, you know, you kind of become that person who says things that others don't, you know, and I think that um, that's the way you mean the truth telling. Like exactly. Somebody needs the truth told in that role. Absolutely. You don't want to always say it was amazing. Yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. I think throughout my career, it's something that I learned, I guess, through that role of chief of staff and how valuable that was in terms of making things better. And I've kept it. And there are always moments of fear where it's like, I'm going to tell you this. And it's really important. But you know, you might be a bit insulted or it's a difficult thing to say. Mm-hmm. And I think it really matters. And I think it really positively affects organizations. And I think it's it's kind of laying it all out there. And I think it's important. And, you know, we're going through a hiring process right now. And even then, I, you know, I feel like saying, you know, these are all of our weaknesses. This is where we need help. And I think that transparency, that frankness, that openness um, to to say this the difficult is, things. The difficult things mm-hmm. really, really matters. And I think we sometimes try to gloss over that a bit. I think it helps too, though, when you don't have an agenda. Like meaning you're saying the the uh, difficult things, or I guess you do have an agenda, but the agenda is for a greater outcome as opposed to, you know, I'm saying this because I want some other outcome. Absolutely. For the betterment of the organization. Yeah, Absolutely. Which I think feels and lands differently. You know, absolutely. if the intention is good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, what are you reading right now? Um, uh, you must be reading. Uh, I mean, after a PhD, do you ever stop reading? No. <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I was a little bit tired of reading after my PhD. And right. It took me a while because I hadn't picked up a book for fun in mm-hmm. a long time. And I just finished reading this book that a girlfriend bought me, and it was called The Choice. And it's Mm. by Eva Egger. She's a Holocaust survivor, and she tells her story. She's actually a therapist as well. And it's such an inspiring story of forgiveness, Um, you know, going back to the camps and and there's actually stories of Holocaust survivors going back to the camps and actually dying shortly thereafter from the trauma of going back there. And so she talks about her whole life, her what keeps her going, the difficulties. And it's just it's a beautiful story of hope. And it's and it's a beautiful story. It resonated a lot with me because I think it's it's that choosing happiness during difficult times. And uh, and and she talks a lot about that. And it's very inspiring. So who's someone you admire and why? So I had to, I wore my Frida Kahlo shirt here today because yeah. <laughs> for me, she's the most fearless. When you talk about being fearless, she was, you know, a feminist in Mexico in the 40s and 50s when it was really hard to be a feminist and an artist. Anywhere. She, yeah, yeah. In Mexico. And she, yeah. you know, celebrated everything from her creativity to her sexuality to intellectual, you know, advancement. She um, was in a really traumatic accident uh, where a pole went through her entire body. She was in a full body cast and she continued to paint. She had canvases on her ceiling and continued to paint beautiful, beautiful paintings. Wow. So she's just a, a, a person who's an image to me of, you know, riding your own wave and doing things that aren't popular during, during certain times and just incredible, incredible strength. At another level, um, my mom is just amazing. And when I think about the roots of who I am, um, having unconditional love, um, a person who's creative, independent during times when it wasn't always right to be independent. Um, yeah, so my mom's pretty, she's pretty amazing. Mm, you're getting a little choked up over she there. She is my right? mama. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's so beautiful. Yeah. 
Uh, and do you see her? Is she close by? Or? She's in Merrickville, so not okay. very far away. Well, that's nice. By. Then yeah. you get to spend some time. Absolutely. So what about technology? Favorite app? Something that you, you know, is there something that organizes the family or... Uh, well, I've just learned about Trello and I'm mm. kind of interested by that. Mm-hmm. And so just playing with that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, um, you know, in terms of organizing the family, we have this big old fashioned calendar where everything is there and it works miraculously. Sometimes the classics don't need to be improved. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> and I'm trying to think about other apps. Every, I, I find that what I find is my whole life is online. My whole life is on this little machine. And I actually look for ways to just get away from it. I find it really hard to, you know, read online, like when I'm reading for fun, because I associate reading online with work. And I yes. really just want to try to have that sense of balance. And, uh, you know, so I was meaning on, will you grab like a book? Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, like physical the physical book. book. Yeah, yeah. Physical book. You know, my mm-hmm. two weeks ago, my 16 year old was standing in front of me while I was texting on the couch and he just looked at me and he said, I don't feel important right now. <laughs> And, you know, that's usually reversed. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like we just have to put it away. And I I, I find I'm a bit frustrated because I'm so dependent on so many apps. And Mm -hmm. do I have I don't. So even when you say the word favorite, I don't feel it is like a lot of joy to my life. I like it. Put it away. Have you ever taken a digital holiday? Yes, absolutely. And we, we actually go out of our way to do that. So we um, hiked the uh, the Chilkoot Trail, the Klondike last summer, wow. and there was no technology at all. We um, go up to 31 Mile Lake near Manawaki. We, and my, my uh, 16-year-old, actually, when we came back from one of our you know, technology-free holidays, his first post on Instagram was, wow, was that ever nice to not you know, be connected for two weeks, for three weeks. And, and it really makes a difference. It's it's actually, I think, essential to bring our family together is are those holidays. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm a big, big fan of it also. Yeah. Just you feel, um, I don't know, like less tired or, yeah. I don't know, restored, whatever. Well, I find if I turn, if I legitimately turn off my work email, I can count it as almost double the holiday. You know, a week away feels like two weeks or, you know, if I'm, and, and I, I say that at work, you know, if I'm able to actually do this, it counts as double the time. So yeah. it's a great investment for the organization. So final question, Julie, what's your dream for Canada? So I, li- I work in an organization every day and have for the past 10 years that looks at building a better Canada. And so there's so many things that inspire me, so many people, so many organizations I've done a lot of work um, in terms of Indigenous people, and that's something that drives me deeply. I am very frustrated by the K-12 system. I was trained as an elementary school teacher, and it deeply frustrates me seeing my boys going through the school. We are in Quebec, and there's a 64% graduation rate from high school, if you can believe it. What? Yeah, 64%. So I'd that's love shocking, to, actually. It is shocking. It is shocking, especially for a province as large as Quebec. So there's so much I'd like to do there. And yet, um, one of my friends is just finishing his PhD, and he talks about vocation. He talks about that all of us, every single human being, has something that really drives them, that they want to effect in the world. And and at whatever level, it doesn't have to be big and dramatic, but it just drives you. And for me, it really is women in leadership. It's I think that women in leadership could be a lever to solving so many of those 
indigenous issues, issues of climate change, issues of competitiveness and growth, having more women at the table. And um, I talk about it every day in the work that I do. Um, you know, there's many opportunities where we could have a round table with 30 men sitting around the table talking about how to improve Canada's competitiveness. And I just don't ever allow it to happen. And I think that, you know, there's so many issues that still exist today related to unconscious bias. You know, if you're watching the the election campaign, something as small as female politicians being called by their first name, men by their last name. You know, there's so many unconscious, there's so many deep-seated biases that exist against women in leadership roles every day, all day. And we see it, you know, when we're asking experts to speak at our round tables, we see it in terms of the percentage that women are are speaking at those round tables. We see it all of the time. And so I, I'm pretty passionate about it. And I really, really, really want to make a difference because it just it just needs to happen. I think that our also our biggest risk is that people think it's been solved. People think that you know, the women's issue has been worked out and it's so far from true. And so we just really need to to get that right. And it can't be a partisan issue. It, ha- it You know, it, it can't be caught up in, in, in one political party caring about this or doing about this. It has to be absolutely everything that we do. A beautiful dream for Canada. Thank you so much. It has been incredibly inspiring to have a leadership, women's leadership expert and passionate believer in a better Canada, Dr. Julie Caffley. Thank you so much for being on the Fearless Woman podcast today. Thank you, Janice, and thank you so much for all that you're doing. It's quite inspiring. Thanks for listening. We want our community to grow. Tell your friends, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for our newsletter at fearlesswomenpodcast.com to get the early scoop. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite app. And if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating. I'm Janice McDonald. Stay fearless. Thank you to the 30% Club Canada for your support of the Fearless Women podcast. The 30% Club believes that gender balance on boards and in senior management not only encourages better leadership and governance, but diversity further contributes to better all-around board performance, and ultimately increased corporate performance for both companies and their shareholders. Want to learn more? Visit their website, 30percentclub.org, and select the Canada chapter to find out about membership, supporters, and key resources. Thank you to BDC, the bank devoted exclusively to entrepreneurs, for your support of the Fearless Women podcast. We love smart companies that want to amplify women's voices. For more information, go to bdc.ca women.